Every great business story has a few things in common. A once in a lifetime idea. Mobile entertainment will truly still be the wave of the future and, and the way we consume media. And, uh, you know, those networks should be scared because HQ proved it. Some big personalities. Russ idolized Kanye West. Colin never really got the spotlight because he wasn't that type of guy. He's just a genius. And plenty of drama. HQ didn't die of natural causes. It was poisoned with a lethal cocktail of incompetence, arrogance, short-sightedness, and sociopathic delusion. He took a $100 million company and brought it to zero in less than two years. I'm Alyssa Bresnak, and over the past year, I've spoken with founders and fans, investors and engineers, employees, celebrities, all to answer one question. What happened to HQ Trivia? The answer is a story about the absurdity of startup culture and the ego of its founders. It's a story about virality and how companies navigate the attention economy. It's a story about hope and promise, betrayal and tragedy. And at the heart of all of it is an app that drew millions of live viewers and was supposed to be the future of TV, until it wasn't. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is Boom Bust, the rise and fall of HQ Trivia. Better not be long, because see, I don't know where the stash is. And if they're dragging us all over this part of town, you know. What's that? What? Something ain't right. What? Shit ain't right. Signal 13! Signal 13! We've all heard that phrase. You have to pay the cost to be the boss. And um, how appropriate that episode 10 of The Wire that we're about to dive into is named The Cost. Because literally uh, every person that's in this uh, episode pays through some way or another. Um, And, you know, they've been so good at naming the the titles of these episodes that uh, I shouldn't be surprised and or am no longer surprised that how they are able to take one theme, something as simple as cost and just run it throughout van and that be, um, you know, kind of the the overarching uh, theme of this episode. So let's just dive right into it. Let's talk some takeaways, man. What do you got? Uh, I mean, my big my biggest takeaway was that when you talk about the cost, you talk about it, like you said on a macro level and a and a, and a micro level. Um, everybody in this episode is paying in some sort of way. Everyone is. This episode when we see whether or not Bubs is going to be able to pay the cost for what he wants, which is getting clean. Um, obviously we see uh, everybody's at a crossroads right now where they're being asked to give something up uh, for what it is that they want, right? Um, We see it with Wallace. Wallace wants out of the game. In this episode, we're going to see whether or not Wallace is going to be willing to do something that's in his world unthinkable to get out of the game. If he's going to be able to go through that, which is, of course, snitching. Uh, Even down to the famed and tragic shooting of Kima, which happens at the end of this episode, even the DEA guy is like, he's got 30,000 bucks uh, of the money in there. Even he has to put something up. Everybody is put some, putting something up for what it is they want. The cops want the Barksdales. The Barksdales want 
out from under with Omar and the rest of the stuff that they're doing. And everybody is paying. And the question after this episode for so many of these different characters um, is going to be, is it too big of a price to pay? The Barca organization is going to have to live with what they did as far as shooting a cop. Uh, Wallace is going to have to live with whether or not he can go through with snitching. Bubbles is going to have to try to go through what it takes um, to get clean. And that's going to be the question at the end of this. So it's a personal cost to everyone. Even McNulty ends up the scene with him and his wife when she takes him to, uh, to, to family court for the emergency ex parte. That's him paying the cost for something that he did, his obsession on this case when he had his kids do the front and follow of Stringer Bell. So the real theme of it is, is it all worth it? Everything now is coming from it. Is it all worth it? That happens in this episode. And even your favorite character, um, Pippin' Ass Orlando, as he's called. (laughs) He plays a significant cost for his stupidity. Um, The ultimate cost, some might say. And even before he paid the ultimate cost, the finality of what happened to him, uh, you know, he was having to wager up just to try to get from up under an incompetent decision that he made. Uh, that got him in that situation. It really just had such huge ramifications for a lot of people on the show, including uh, Kima, who you just mentioned there. So, yeah, I mean, I think we both very easily got the um, narrative or the the trope of this episode. You know, what was interesting, usually in Wire episodes, they have... It, they have a lot of subplots. They have, you know, you have to keep up with a lot of characters in a lot of situations. But when you boil down this episode, it really isn't a lot to it. It's a lot of meat, but it's one, two, it's like three things in this. Yeah. And so from a, from a simplicity standpoint, in terms of following, this is one of the simpler episodes that we've seen in this first season to follow just because it leads all into one place and all the characters are actually kind of moving in the same direction toward the same eventuality. So it's a little bit different, I think, than some of the other things that we've seen them do so far uh, this season. Um, all right, let, let's recap what happened uh, in the cost. Uh, biggest thing, you you already talked about it, is Kima. She gets shot after a botched buy bust involving Orlando, who, of course, uh, was popped for selling to an undercover police officer. Uh, and he does the most Orlando thing ever. Turns snitch so that he could work off his time or work off, um, you know, whatever debt he had incurred, um, you know, for the stupidity that he so rightly earned. And it's also a combination of what puts Kim in that situation of Orlando's incompetence and Burrell, his impatience and ass kissing because he is Mr. By Bus. Like that's what he's all that's what he's wanted this Barksdale case to be about from the beginning. Just get some dope on the table, get some money on the table, send people to jail. I don't give a shit about these politicians, especially since um, there are tentacles now that reach a little bit into his world. He's like, stop this shit. Let's just, you know, put some bracelets on some folks and move on. And even though Daniels and pretty much everybody in that department knew that this was a pointless exercise. They went through with it anyway, and it leads to Kima being shot. Uh, Also, Avon goes underground at Stringer's insistence. Um, Very obvious plan. So no, I ain't giving them credit for it, Van, before you ask. Mm, Okay, (laughs) just saying. (laughs) Stringer's almost like, this is almost a point where Avon, 
who believes in Stringer way more than you do, allows Stringer to kind of call some of the shots for the entire organization. Mm. Mm, yeah, well, well, we'll see how long that lasts. Okay. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. Right. Uh, so Stringer makes Avon give up the old pager, gives him a new one that's only con- uh, only uh, connected to their New York Connect. Um, and he also pretty much spells out to Avon, no more money runs, no more you, t- you and drugs can't be in the same room because they have uh, too much at stake. As you said, everybody is constantly assessing what is this all uh, worth um, as well. No, you've not been talking on any phones. You're not been touching any drugs, and from now on, you are not doing the money runs. Me and Bake, we gonna take care of that shit until this whole thing cool off. Let me get that pager. Oh, what's up? You serious? Serious. I'm gonna get you a New York supply number only. And these motherfucking local cats wanna talk to you? They gotta talk to me. Also, Wallace, uh, his conscience finally gets the best of him. McNulty and Kima, they were looking for Wallace anyway. Uh, and, you know, he was under no obligation to tell them anything. But nevertheless, it's one of the easier interrogation. It wasn't even an interrogation. It was a cleansing of his soul. He purged. He, 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 he purged, purged himself. He told him, yeah. He told him everything. Um, told him that we Bay, Stinkum, Bird, Stringer, all involved in the death of Omar's lover, Brandon. But uh, as people easily note, um, as easily seen, he refuses to implicate D'Angelo. Nah, D, he was good to me. Yeah, all right. D'Angelo's shown him a lot of kindness. And when he went to him in the last episode and told him he was out the game, D'Angelo gave him a little pocket change. And, you know, he has assumed a very protective role over uh, Wallace. Um, and speaking of D'Angelo, uh, he went on that Keep Sweat Begging uh, tour with Chardin and she was like, eh, uh-uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Hearing uh, none of it. So uh, by the that's way, kind of. That's, hmm. the, that's the cost that D'Angelo had to pay. You're right. Right. You're so exactly I mean, right. and and re, we, I, I, there's more. Like everyone, Judge Feeling, right? He's been kicked off of the ticket. When he's not on the ticket, why the fuck not? Maybe it's the company he keeps. Because of the things that he's done, he is outside of the political sort of inner circle of some of the people that are running with him. It's all coming to bear on everyone. Everything is Kima. There's a great scene with Kima. Um, and her girlfriend where they're in the bar and you can tell that their relationship is paying a cost for Kima's love of policing her. Like they're all sitting around and her girlfriend is listening to Kima tell a story about how she first became, uh, you know, independent and powerful as a police officer. And you can see the strain there. So everything that everyone's doing, everything is coming to a head right now. And who's going to win in the end and who's going to be better off in the end all has to do a lot, a lot uh, with how the show changes after episode 10. Yeah, because it is a dramatic turn. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's been building to to it's we've seen some, you know, pseudo major developments happen up until this point. But this is, you know, when you say this is the first major like, you know, bombshell that's dropped at this point in the in the wire when Kima was shot um speaking of Kima that is very obvious choice to do a deep dive into so Van for you uh, what is it about Kima that resonates and makes her such a uh you know such a foundational piece in this series I think now and throughout the series I think Kima 
is the best possible version of a police officer that you get in the wire. She is the best possible version of a cop. She is the. So you would even rank her above Lester. Yeah. In terms of. Well, mm, well, yeah. Well, when you think about the whole thing, think about the entire run. I I don't mean in terms of like actual policing, but just. No, no, no. no. Yeah. No, I'm not talking about how good they are at their job. I mean, right. As far as like a good cop, there is one to me, one good cop who puts the integrity of the job above anything else in the wire. And that's Kima. Um, She showed herself uh, like throughout the history of the show to be pretty, you know, incorruptible or uncorruptible, however you say that. Uh, And I, for one, have a tremendous amount of respect for the character because of that reason. Um, Another thing that's interesting about her is that Daniels, as Lester says, raised Kima up from a pup. She is fruit off of Daniels' tree, right? In terms of the way she looks at the job and how she uh, performs the job. That tells you that some of the ripping and running that was dunning, that, that some of the ripping and running that was done in Daniels' younger days, he learned from it to the degree that the cop that he had the most to do with, the officer that he has the most to do with is Kima. Like, she, like you know, he comes from her. So the lessons that he learned back in the good old days, you see them in her. By the way, her character also is one by which you learn a lot about the street because Kima is still on the job learning as this season goes on. She starts off, she is a step above her and carve in terms of uh, the way she does her thing. Rip, roll, fuck people up, right? But she's she's a sponge. She listens to McNulty. She gets with him. She listens to Lester. She gets with him. She gets all of these different tactics. She takes what she already had, which was a great CI and bubbles, and she learns how to massage that a little bit more. Lester teaches her how to pick out Chardin. You know, you know what I mean? The whole deal. You see Kima becoming... Uh, not just a good cop, but also a brilliant detective. Uh, and for that reason, it's no surprise to me that she was the one that ended up taking the bullet to readjust everybody's priorities because she is the best of all of them in terms of just her her mentality, her mindset, um, her moral compass, she is the best of all of them. She is the one that if something happened and it was because of somebody else, they would be the most destroyed uh, by that development. Yeah, I, I would agree because I was mentally, as you were talking, I was thinking that same thing about would, would it have been, would anybody else have provided as big of a wow factor or as big of a oh my God factor as Kima? And I don't think so because with every everybody else, and everybody else who's like a really, really major piece, there would have been some level of rationalization of, you know what, even though it's not right what happened, I could see why it did happen. Mm-hmm. And Kima was doing nothing but her job when this actually happened. If something happens to McNulty, everybody's like, he is kind of an asshole, you right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. And he he constantly steps outside the line. So you can easily envision a situation where he stepped over the line, wind up in a in a bad situation. And, you know, that was kind of that. So he she is 
in so many ways, the soul of that entire unit. Mm. Um, and she's the moral compass, not just for the unit, but I think for this whole entire police force, because as you said, even all the best cops have a little bit of dirt on them. And Kim is no exception because, you know, one of the more startling scenes that she had in this season was when uh, Bodie um, fired on the old guy and she was, she jumped in there to whoop his ass just like everybody else. Yeah. And I think that's why people kind of ride with her is that as much as she does in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways, reminding them that they could be better. Uh, she also they she also feels like one of them you know what i'm saying like mm-hmm. they feel her she's like she's one of us right right and so she's never whatever moral stance she's taken i don't think has you know there, there's one or two situations that happen l- later but generally speaking it it does she doesn't take a moral stance that alienates everybody jimmy is always doing that mcnulty's always doing that like when he gets on his high horse he pissing everybody off in the room and i don't think she's necessarily you know, that way. I mean, I think it's just her character um, being one of the, being the strongest female lead in this show. I, I like that they, they don't necessarily lead with the fact that she's a woman or lead with the fact that she's a lesbian or a black female lesbian. They don't lead with those necessarily, but they do very subtle things to let you know how challenging it is for her to navigate that space that's so thoroughly male. Mm-hmm. I mean, every woman works in, to some degree, male-dominated spaces, right? But her space being in law enforcement is 500 times more male than most of the spaces that most women are in, even mine, even being in sports. And so um, when she talks about, like, um, a few episodes ago, when she explained when McNulty finally found out she was a lesbian and she explained why she was open about it. And that's because she got tired of being hit on and she got tired of guys coming after. And even every time they address her sexuality, it's always in a way that um, it's always in a way that's important, but disarming, if that makes any sense, yeah. you know, cause even, even her old buddy yeah. that bust, busted Orlando, mm-hmm. right. That yeah. she runs into and, and he jokes with her and he said, yeah, uh, you know, I knew Kima when she was good, indicating yeah. when she was, um, you know, if that if that ever if that time ever existed, it didn't sound like it. I mean, clearly he was joking around, and she just kind of laughs at it because she has sort of been able to be in this space of giving, uh, getting the respect from them, um, them not just respecting who she is as a police officer, but who she is as a woman. And giving her a very different lane than I imagine a lot of women that come through the department get. Yeah, like when she tells the story, that's absolutely the same thing I thought about. Um, you know, when she meets her old buddy, who's the state cop who um, who who busts Orlando. Uh, it, you can tell that there's an affinity there that comes from the fact that they're not bullshitting around with each other. It's like that thing that you have with your real friends, where you know something happens and they're the ones that can talk the most shit to you and. I heard a comedian say that, like, you know that a group is really accepted when I joke on them. Because if I'm walking on eggshells for you, then that means I don't think you're a part of whatever this is. Now, you know, sometimes I don't like some of these jokes that come out of these sets. But at the same time, you know that somebody really respects you when they bust you on your ass a little bit, like verbally. And she obviously, because they so freely talk about these things with her, has the respect of everybody around her. 
I thought the story that she told to her girlfriend in the bar is a key part of her character because a lot of women, a lot of black women in that situation um, wouldn't feel comfortable. Uh, A lot of women, period, wouldn't feel comfortable with having to attain the respect of a male coworker. Like me being coming from places that I've come from, I don't ever want to feel like I have to come into a room and prove to you how smart that I am. Like by virtue of being in the room with you, I feel like all of those expectations should drop off the face of the earth, right? And anytime I'm described in a way or I'm I'm talking to you in a way or or I have to uh, prove myself to you, it just makes me feel um, a little bit more marginalized and isolated. Like why do I have to prove anything? For her, though, you could tell she took pride in proving her mettle. She took pride in proving her mettle because she feels like that's what cops are supposed to do. She didn't look at herself as, in that particular situation, as the black female cop, as the black lesbian cop, as black female lesbian cop. Um, I guess you have to be female to be a lesbian. Uh, <laughs> there you go. She looked at herself as a member of the force like anyone else, and she was happy to have earned that respect. She was happy to have done that despite whatever preconceived notions might have been about her. And I thought it was very, very interesting. You know, she talked about it before on the other side. But more than anything, Kima wants to be a good cop. She really does. She wants to be a good cop. She cares about the job. And she loves being a police officer. And I think throughout this series, if there's one person who doesn't just love the job, McNulty loves proving how smart he is. Lester loves solving a good puzzle. Herc and Carver love fucking people up. Kima loves being a police officer. She just digs it. And that comes across throughout the entire series. I I thought it was great from a a character development standpoint and also just as a, a reflection of real life that they didn't construct Kima as being a trying to be one of the boys type of women. Yeah. And even though I'm sure for, because they make jokes about it throughout the, throughout the series is that, yeah, I'm sure you, somebody could make the, um, you know, observation that, well, you know, she is a lesbian and therefore guys might feel a little bit more comfortable around her, you know, or, or whatever, I guess, cause they're into the same gender. There would be some temptation to, to make a char- a character like that, that shallow, but, even she's always herself. Like she's not trying to represent, you know, um, or speak for all LGBTQ people. She's not like, she's just being her. And she is because she has their respect that I think when she tells them something, or even when she's just joking with them, that there is, you're always aware of the fact that, that Kima is very much, you know, a woman. You're not thinking at looking at her and thinking, Oh, um, well, they have her behaving too much like a man or they're trying, trying to fit in that way. Cause, and that's not, again, that has nothing to do with her sexuality, but I just, in spaces, male dominated spaces, I run into a lot of women and talk to a lot of women who feel like that they need to do that, who they need to be just like men in order to be accepted by men. And Kima's character has never come off that way. And I appreciate the nuance of that, uh, as a woman kind of looking at this, um, at this particular character. Um, uh, one thing I've often thought about when thinking about um, her and, and her role in this series, I wonder if, and this doesn't necessarily come out in all the, the pieces matter 
David Simon had been, you know, because of his time in the police force, he, he or his time documenting and reporting on the police force in Baltimore, he drew a lot of characters and composites from that. And he was, you know, he drew Kima's character, much like any other ones, from people that he actually knew. It made me wonder, though, with this, would they have been able to write this character as nuanced if, if it were a heterosexual character? I don't know. Although, there's a character that I draw a parallel to. Uh, in a, Not in this show, it's in a different show. Um, Regina King in Watchmen. Uh, the if you guys watch Watchmen, um, Regina King's character now she's obviously the lead in that. Uh, in, in Watchmen, just a character that was kind of the moral center of a show that looked like it was in like in a crazy world. First of all, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant storytelling on Watchmen. Jesus, come on, man. Um, but like strong female characters. Uh, police forces with sense of duty and honor. Now, in that case, you know, she was up with uh with the uh, with, with Yaya, like everybody's favorite uh, piece of chocolate right now. And it didn't really, <laughs> right. it didn't really take anything away from her, but she wasn't as much of a unit I- involved in, in a unit as what Kima is. Um, I, I just wonder what Kima's husband would be. You know what I mean? Like, like, like how they would, because remember, and this has to do a lot with preconceived notions that we have in terms of gender roles and things of that nature. When Press Belusi comes comes around in one scene earlier in an earlier episode and tells Herc and Carver to get up on the roof and watch out for the guys, Herc and Carver go, why don't you go? Like, didn't you shoot your, your, your vehicle up? Didn't you do this? Didn't you do that? Like, fuck you. You don't tell us what to do. Like, there's stripes on your arm. She comes in right behind them, right behind Press, and says, y'all need to get up there and see what they're using uh, for for payphones or whatever. Nothing. They say nothing. They, right, they, they instantly go. They, yeah, they look <laughs> at each other, and you know they're going to get their asses up on them roofs. Uh, them roofs. So I think uh, there's a possibility that in my toxic male brain that uh, my perception of Kima might be different if after all of that she came home, and, you know, and there was some, I don't know who it would be at the time. Maybe it would be Tay Diggs. Or or, or or somebody like that, and she's telling all her problems to him. Maybe maybe there would have been a, a, a disconnect between that, especially when I watched it for the first time and I was still in my early twenties. Um, but the character's really perfectly crafted uh, in terms of having enough of everything. Even her relationship with Bubbles, her relationship with Bubbles, um, it's a relationship that's it's a definitely a transactional one. It's a CI to cop relationship, but there's also tenderness there. Like she cares. Like I, if I was going to sum up Kima in one way, Kima cares. Kima, like the NBA, she cares. Okay? Like Tupac. Like, like yeah. Kima like, cares if don't nobody, if else, don't care. nobody else care. <laughs> Kima cares. Kima cares. <laughs> no, I, I, I do think they, they have given her, they have given her a sense of nurturing, but not in a stereotypical way right. that they tend to write female characters who are you know as overly nurturing as much as like bubbles is a perfect example of this as 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 lengthy as her relationship with bubbles is and as beneficial as it is for both parties they never and and this applies to the rest of the series and you can correct me if i'm wrong they never have kima she helps bubbles but she's never trying to save bubbles right which 
I think was kind of the proper way to handle their relationship, not just because it is, as you say, largely transactional, but I think it would have been just so easy to make it seem like to to make a lead female character be the one trying to save everybody. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. It, it, it's instead of um, doing the job and doing some of the things that, that Kiba has done. But I, I just like the fact that in terms of, and it, also in terms of, if we think about just the well-roundedness of Kiba, I'm not sure if other characters, if they show as panoramic of a view of other people as they do of her. Cause we, we see her as a partner, um, as a partner as both, you know, in her personal life and on the job, what that's like. We, you know, later on, there's some other personal developments where we see, you know, uh, um, her develop a, you know, relationship as it comes to, you know, children. So we see that part of, uh, of who she is, um, how she rides and sometimes has to, um, reinforce uncomfortable realities with her colleagues. Like we see her in so many different situations and even some level of anger that she may carry because, you know, uh, Kima as for all these wonderful qualities that she has, she is still about that action. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and we see that part of it too. And so they have really given us a, a level of insight into her that I'm not sure that they give the same insight into every character. I mean, like with even with Bunk, there are limitations. Even with McNulty, there are certain boxes, but it feels like they allow Kima a little more room to play in other areas that they don't with other characters. Yeah, she's just a a, a much bigger part of the, you know, soul of the show um, than, than some of the other people. Like, you know, we see uh, the problems and the issues of the police force and kind of the toll that the job takes on someone who's trying to have a normal life, which by the way, she's still attempting to have a normal life, uh, especially, you know, in, in, in upcoming seasons. And we just see how that pulls on her. And we also see her flirt with being some of the things that, you know, she doesn't want to become. And, you know, that a, a lot of that stuff happens later on. The funny thing about her, Bubbles, this is the last thing I say about her, is that like they they don't mother Teresa her because remember when Bubbles says that he wants to get clean to Kima, right? <laughs> like it's not like she goes, "Oh my God, I'm so proud of you, I'm so happy." She goes, "Right, she's not looking at halfway houses for him." Or yeah, <laughs> now nah, she she helps him, but she reminds him that I'm about to lose my best CI. What the fuck am I going to do with a clean informant? Did you think about that? Well, I'm gonna do with a clean informant. You know what I mean? So, uh, love the character, and it's 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 no, it's 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 no coincidence that when it came time for the entire force to rally around one officer, they they chose Kima to be that officer. So that, of course, leads right into um, the biggest scene, and in many ways, I mean, it's, I would say it was the best scene because watching it over this time around, I, I don't know. I mean, I remember her being shot obviously that was very dramatic but what I paid more attention to or what struck me more um when she got shot was the drama and the build-up leading up to when she got shot Mm. as like you feel the tension immediately when she's in the car and it's just her and Orlando before they go pick up Savino like you you feel that like okay she could actually go left here you know Mm -hmm. and then when he gets in the car and then she has to get in the back and they have those moments of uncomfortable silence and she realizes they're not going the direction or going to the place that they said they were. And, you know, she, 
you it's like you can read her mind and see all the calculations going through her head like okay if this happens i'm gonna do this or that like she's already she already knows that she is in real danger and maybe the first couple times i watched the wire and watched this episode in particular i got a sense that it was a dangerous situation but i didn't feel the danger the way that i felt it when i watched it this time around yeah it's really well crafted television i mean uh from the beginning savino's acting a, a, a little bit sketchy you know uh, it's almost as if Savino knows that um, uh, she is no more. Number one, he gets in the car. She's not supposed to be there. It's almost as if Savino knows that she's barking instructions to somebody because he turns the radio up a couple of times, maybe to drown out whatever it is that she's saying. Also, when now remember, all of this is put into motion because Orlando has been busted. He is now in the game, like Levy says, and he is now turning uh, state's evidence against um the the bar sale organization in, in in what's going on here so carver says something carver says like they know that he just got popped why wouldn't they think that he was snitching just just i'm gonna talk about that a little bit later because i feel like they did my girl kima dirty okay like i feel like they did my girl kima a little bit dirty putting kima kind of in this situation especially with knowing the way the organization feels about orlando uh uh, I guess we know that, but that whole situation, that's a tough scene for me to watch. I, I keep hoping it's going to go a different way, but obviously it's not going to go a different well, way. I, th- that was one of the questions I have for you. If you can, you know, remember when the first time you saw it, did you think she was dead? Yeah, for sure. Because yeah. like at, at that particular point, you're in the first season of a show and there's always somebody that goes in the first season so that the writers and the the creators of the show let you know exactly what the stakes are. Now, in The Sopranos, I don't think it really happened um, until season two, which is when I think that Big Pussy was killed. Um, but there's always they always do something in the first season of the show to let you know, yo, shit is real, and this is kind of what happens. And so when I first when yeah. she when she was laid out for the first time, I definitely thought she was dead. Yeah, I mean, in Game of Thrones, they let you know in the first ten minutes that nobody's safe. <laughs> right, but then at the end of at the end of the at the end of season one, uh, Ned Stark gets his head cut off. Right, and I and I thought that she was their Ned Stark. When I was watching that, I was thinking it's so funny how these shows change. When I saw Ned Stark get decapitated, I was thinking, how can the show go on without Ned Stark? Isn't I mean, that crazy? Yeah, I was thinking that, like you can't, you can't. You know, you can't kill Ned Stark. But so I definitely thought that was the case with her. But I think in not killing Kima, the uh, Simon and Burns actually made a much, much bigger point. They actually made a much, much bigger point because she gets shot, she gets lit up, and she comes right back. The job. She loves the job. Right. And then I think even the impact, they're able to make certain points because the impact, her death, uh, what that had, um, you know, kind of on others. Uh, and, you know, I, I think because you've said this before about The Wire, The Wire is not action oriented. And even though you're aware that the police are in dangerous situations, they make you feel that usually through dialogue or the situation itself. It's not usually through force. Mm. And so this is uh, an instance where you kind of understand that as much as like they can sit there, you know, in in the unit and put pictures on the wall and pool campaign records and do all this other stuff they're doing dangerous work sure dangerous work that that could often lead to the situation 
that Kima was in. Um, other powerful scenes I thought uh, that were in this episode got it. I mean, I guess the, the two are linked at the hip, but bubbles, I mean, yeah. more unpacking of who bubbles is. Cause we find out as he's sitting there on the bench, talking to Waylon that he doesn't know his father and has a son. And I think I had totally forgotten this. I, Keyshawn. I thought Keyshawn, I, I, I had I thought, completely I, forgotten that bubbles yeah. had a son Yeah, that lives in New Jersey with his mother and um, yeah, I was just like, oh, he got a son. Like, what did that? Happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the 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 version uh, we keep saying the version of bubbles that we're seeing took a long time to create. It took a long time. There was a lot of loss. Think about it. Bubbles has lost his son. He lost that sister. He lost that uh, that niece. I, I think I believe the girl's. A, it's a little girl. Yeah, right? it's a niece. It's, uh, he yep. lost. He lost that niece. There's a lot of loss that goes into who Bubbles is, and he still hasn't hit his bottom yet, which is, well, you know, the, 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 the situation he was talking about with Waylon. He still hasn't hit his bottom yet. So, yeah, that's a great scene as well. Yeah, and um, and I finally, I'll say, um, one of my other, again, smaller, smaller scale, but uh, big storyline is when Daniels takes Wallace to his grandmother's house. Mm. So after Wallace snitches, um, it tells the police, you know, everything and unloads his conscience. Really, it's really it's really not. I mean, I, I know I know about uh, how in those situations and especially in that environment, like talking to the police, how that's viewed. But I guess I didn't necessarily look at it as traditional snitching, if you will, because he was carrying such a heavy weight. But nevertheless, Daniels, because um, they're figuring out what to do with him since he's told him all this good information, how to best protect him. And he takes him to his grandmother's house. And when they're walking up and you hear the crickets and, and uh, Wallace is like, what's that? And he's like, crickets. He'd never heard a cricket. In mm, a city boy. Yeah, he's, he's not. He's a city boy. And it's just like it just is one of those really small things that communicates just, you know, childlike, naive underexposed he like it, all those things you're like damn this dude he's 16 years old and that was the first time he heard a cricket yeah crazy i mean he he said he hadn't been down there since he was nine years old right yeah. and the the a lot of times when you have situations um like wallace is growing up in you really believe that that world is the only world and um because you're not trying to thrive in that world you're trying to survive in it um and when you're surviving seeing around the corner is more important than seeing the big picture. Uh, and so he, you know, he goes on there, he's hearing the crickets, everything in his life is changing. That seems hard to watch too, just because um, it, it also, it, that's a good file this way for later. We'll talk about it later on with just how those police officers don't really know how to deal with a juvenile in that situation and, and really protect him. For me, some of the scenes that I loved from the episode, obviously the the number one, a number one scene is the 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 incredibly well paced, tension grabbing, uh, Kima shooting scene. The, nothing's going to top that. Uh, that's one of the gold standard scenes of the Wire series period. Um, but some other stuff I like Omar's meeting with Stringer. I got a man who said he's going to give you a life back, yo. Who Boxdale? My man say, tell that motherfucker that if he can find a way not to dip in our pockets, we're going to call this shit evil. Y'all ace barely. And what you did to my boy? So you think after what you did to Brandon, we supposed to find some even on this, huh? Yo, I don't know shit about shit. 
I'm just a messenger. As much as you say about Stringer, Stringer kept it close to the vest in that. Stringer, like <laughs> he did, he did look out. I will give him some credit. He did look out for his boy by not yeah. actually saying the Barksdale name. I mean, even though it turned out he was wearing a wire, he treated that entire conversation as if he were. Right. Stringer showed you kind of the flex. It was kind of the flex and the skills, you know, that um that not flex as is defined in West Baltimore, but he was flexing a little bit with how he uh, was able to protect all the interests of everyone involved and still get his point across. That kind of shows you the skill set of Stringer Bell and why Avon has him on point um, for stuff like that. Uh, also, I really enjoyed, just as a as a comedic uh, device, um, another big development on this is the cops are getting close to the main stash. So the main stash where all of the drugs in West Baltimore are coming through, the cops have kind of figured out... Uh, through deduction and through the wiretap, where the main stash is. So, uh, Sittner uh, and and um, and Carve have drawn the task of sitting on the main stash in two twelve-hour shifts, uh, while they monitor it and kind of wait for this guy to come use the phone. Herc is in uh, in service training. When Sittner comes into the van, and Herc is, uh, excuse me, and Carver is in there with that disgusting display of, I can feel that belch that he gives. I can feel it every time. It was, it was aggressive. It was aggressive. Every time that scene comes in, he's like, he's like, damn, damn, Carl, you trifling. But you, it, it made me watching that. It made me think of like, think about how difficult that is. Like, could you, oh my could you God. sit you know, for hours on end in a van watching a payphone. Watching a payphone, man. I would I be. Stick. I swear, I'd be. Wait, watching a payphone. By the way, right in the parking lot of a convenience store. Yeah. I would be seven thousand pounds by the time I came out. Oh that van. yeah, he's just in there. I'm eating every ten minutes. The whole fucking nine is just. I love every time. Like, as soon as, as soon as sitting gets inside the van, he is just. So it's, it reminded me back in the G of my mom walking into my room and just the look that would be on her face. Like she would walk into the room and she would look around with me with like, like how could I have produced someone who could live in this? (laughs) She wouldn't even be mad. It would be pure disappointment. She said, son, really? (laughs) Really, son? And it it was the same. That's one of the the little nuggets of The Wire that I love. So those are some of my favorite scenes right there. And, and he's so, and it, let's be real, like he's so used to being with Herc that I'm sure to Herc, he probably looks like a neat freak. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. And so Carver's like used to being in a space of being a slob. But as was, uh, at, you know, what happened in, the, in this episode, um, Herc was away getting in service training. So that's why him and Sidnor uh, had to, um, you know, man that assignment together. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 
0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You could do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, two times. And if you're completely insane, three times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature that's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you, but the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. Uh, in terms of some of the great lines uh, from this episode, um, you know, Waylon was just dropping bars, just dropping bars the whole time. The bubs yeah. when they were sitting down there on their park bench, and probably my favorite thing he said when he said forgiveness. From other folks is good, but it ain't nothing but words coming at you from the outside. Words coming at you from the outside. Look, forgiveness from other folks is good, but it ain't nothing but words coming at you from outside. Mm. Yeah, that was probably my favorite line in this one, uh, as well as uh, something we mentioned earlier when Kima <laughs> turns to Bub and said, what the fuck am I going to do with a clean informant? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how is that going to help me? So those are probably my two the two lines that struck me the most. I, I got three. I got uh, I got a couple. Um, I got Waylon's line. I think that's the line of this show right there. Uh, the line of this show. Forgive this is nothing. Just words coming at you from the outside. I also like when when um, <laughs> when Jimmy's wife, uh, after the family court hearing, asks him if him and Rhonda are still sleeping together. And by the way, this is a very important. This is the first time we really get a glimpse into the fact that. Uh, it was specifically his affair with Rhonda that ended the marriage. Now we knew had known that they had been together while he was married before, but it was that specific relationship that um, ended Jimmy's marriage and that they had put a private, his wife had put a private detective on him. There had been a lot of strain uh, at the end of Jimmy's relationship with his wife, which knowing that him bringing Rhonda in to act as his attorney. That's messy as fuck. That you are Fucking insane white people shit. Messy as fuck. Because like no way. Like, like it would have been, would have went down right in the courtroom immediately on site. So I give his ex-wife credit, but he she asked him, she goes, Are you two still? And he goes, No. Yes. <laughs> and then he goes, so and then, then he goes, a little. A there little. Is, there is no little. Once it goes in, Jimmy, that's a lot. It's it's done. It's, it's done. a lot. It's either yes or no. It's like you no, know, yes, a little. Yeah, he is. Like, I, I love that. But for me, like we 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 talk about the weighty important quotes, and there are a lot of them in every single episode of The Wire. Every single episode of The Wire has them. But for me, I'm sorry. Uh, my favorite quote is, "Damn, carve you trifling," like. Cheese puffs and ring dings. <laughs> They're like ching, cheese puffs and fucking ring dings. Like he was so drove. Like I love it. I love it. Damn, Carl, you trifling. Yeah, I admit it. I'm disgusting. Cheese puffs and fucking ring dings. Yeah. One more I wrote down. Levy. Levy, who is also so. So there's actually a scene at the end of the last episode, like right before Omar shoots at Avon, where 
when they're counting the money. They're counting the money. So, right. you know, this is after Avon has already intimidated Orlando. So you think that Orlando is actually now back in his good graces. Everything is cool now. So you think that Orlando would act right? Nah, nah, nah. No. He's stupid. Pippin' Orlando. Pippin' ass Orlando. Old ass looking car, the exact kind of car he would drive. You know, he gets in trouble. And after he gets in trouble, he gets busted. Levy comes in and Levy's strong arming him because Levy's a gangster too. And Levy looks at him and says, you want to be in the game, right? Now you're in the game. I've heard that my entire life. You're like, my dad would say that. You out there running the streets? Well, got what you wanted. You're, you're doing whatever. You, this is what you wanted. Like, people tend to look at the game, and I'm sure Orlando Blocker did. Orlando Blocker is down there managing girls, managing dancers. He's looking upstairs. He's not looking where he's at. He's not looking around him. He's not present. He's looking upstairs. What's going on upstairs? Upstairs, they fly. Upstairs, they got cash. Upstairs, they got power. Upstairs, all these girls want to sleep with them. He's not thinking about what you have to do to climb the stairs. How many times you get knocked back down those same stairs and what the cost that you have to pay. And he learns so quickly. And Levy has seen this a million times. You want to be in the game? Now you're in the game. Love that quote. Yeah, and especially when he threatens that, hey, do you want me to go back and tell him that you said you're not signing? Yeah. <laughs> Until you get your bail paid? I don't think you want to do that. I don't think. Where you think you at, boy? Say, like, <laughs> come on. Also, something I didn't notice until I was, uh, until watching it this time around, is I didn't realize that you were talking about that scene between McNulty and his wife. I didn't realize Rhonda didn't know that there were pictures. Yeah. That the wife had hired a private detective. I, I had totally missed that. Like, oh, she doesn't even know that that's how his wife found out about them is right. that she hired a PI and there are pictures, which would be a very necessary detail to know, particularly since she seems to be on a career path headed for running for some kind of public office, like running to be a judge, for example. You might want to know that there's pictures oh, out there. Oh, that's so good. I never even thought about that. And a married man. Oh, I never even thought about that. If Jimmy's wife really wanted to be, if she really, ooh, see? And even you. then, she's a public official, so it wouldn't. she didn't have to wait till she was a judge. She could right. just release it right there and be mm-hmm. like, oh, by the way, yeah. this home wrecking hole right here. <laughs> like she, she, as soon as she walked in that, that courtroom, she could have immediately, as, as soon as the proceeding was over, called the Baltimore Sun and be like, I got something for you. Now, now I'm going to ask you a question. Why do you think it would be that McNulty wouldn't tell Rhonda that they're pictures? I think it's because of the the implications on her job because Rod, you know Rod is very career driven mm-hmm. and she clearly has her sights set on big things and you know like Jimmy is a greaseball he knows he is you know that he's shady and trifling as fuck the least he could try to do is minimize the damage that he caused mm. he already fucked up by cheating on his wife it cost him his family <laughs> now he's gonna fuck somebody else's life up too. Just by, you know, I mean, of course you could say, well, that's what Rodney gets for sleeping with a married man. Okay, I hear you. I mean, I can't really debate you on that, that there's going to be consequences for her. But I think it has a lot to do with not wanting to cause any grief. And this is probably the bigger reason. He don't want to fuck up his case. I'll be honest with you. I think there's a bigger reason than any of that. Then then even that, what is it? He still want to (gasps) smash. Oh. If, see, that's like, true. He's, that's true. He still wants to keep that door open. If 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 you tell her that she is the reason 
why y'all you're not married anymore. I mean, she knows that there was cheating going on and stuff like that, right? Because they were in hotel rooms. But she might not know. She might think that there's a lot of women like that. She might not know that she is specifically the reason that it stopped. And a guy like Jimmy McNulty knows that in order to smash, there's one thing that you always have to do, and that's remove guilt. You got to take the guilt away. You got to be like, come on. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's guilt. That's good, about, man. It's, That's very good. Sometimes it's guilt about the way you're going to look on campus. Sometimes it's guilt. But you want to make sure there's no guilt. You got to take the guilt away. And so if you, if she feels guilty about being with you, you might cut that door off. You know what I mean? But no. Jimmy, the fuck boy, the true fuck boy, okay? All right? Jimmy himself. Uh, Jimmy knows. He knows. You can't tell her that. Got to take the guilt off of the plate so you can still eat the meal. Oh. <laughs> that was a bar, man. That was a bar. <laughs> that was a bar. Um, ton of file this away for later moments. This one was so obvious to me. Man, Donetta. By, by the way, what, what a pair. Donetta and D'Angelo. Mm. Sounds, sounds like a homecoming couple there, right? Yeah, yeah. Donetta just stresses D'Angelo to fuck out. That's yeah. why he went running up trying to make, he's like, shit, I got to make things right with Shardine. I can't take this shit no yeah. more. <laughs> right? In, in a span, she, first of all, she did stop talking for like 20 straight minutes mm-hmm. and she telling him all the shit he ain't got up in his spot. Right. Which is, which is quite, I must say, I, I'm impressed and astounded by the arrogance of that, when you in somebody else's shit telling them how they shit ain't good enough for you. Yeah. <laughs> about right? some bedroom set. Like, like, just being annoying, and that's when, and and that's when he realizes really what he lost. Yeah, that's his yeah. wake up reality situation like that. But that's definitely a file this away for later moment. Oh yes, file that one away. File because, that one, yeah, because like, yes, this <laughs> you just she is started. exposed. She's just getting started, but mm-hmm. that's in a snapshot what she, um, you know, what she is like, mm-hmm. uh, and for that matter, what she ascribes to be. You mentioned this earlier. When Kima and her girl Cheryl, uh, Cheryl, who by the way read for the part of Kima, <laughs> interesting, <laughs> yes, read for the part of Kima. So Cheryl and Kima at the bar with friends, you know, a little night out, and Kima telling that story was very enlightening. But watch the look on Cheryl's face as she's telling that story. Mm. She did not fix her face until she was more than halfway through. And she was looking at her through most of that, like, see, that's what the fuck the problem is. Yep. So I would file that facial expression away, um, you know, for later. Mm-hmm. Um, and my final one is Waylon when he told Bubs he had HIV. Yeah. Which on this show, they call it the bug. At least you got your health. That's <laughs> <Here's> the health. <laughs> I got the bug. That is kind of a a bit of a window or a precursor into another storyline that happens in season four, I think, season four or five, one of those two. I think it's season four. But uh, that happens involving um, the bug. And, you know, he kind of drops another alternate hit when he says, uh, when Waylon tells Bubs, you want to kick this shit, you got to forgive your own self. Right. Which is a file you know, file this away for a later moment because that scenario is exactly, it, it acutely applies to Bubs and his 
journey to get clean. So those are the farthest away for later moments that I had. One for me is, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but how Daniels specifically takes interest in Wallace and how the police deal with caring for a juvenile that uh, they're supposed to be looking after. One of the most powerful stories in The Wire is going to be very reminiscent of that. The best laid plans of all of these big systemic titan structures that are just trying to protect one young black kid. And can they do it? Can they protect Wallace right now who's putting it on the line for them? Uh, can they protect him from the streets? Can they protect him from uh, his addiction? Can they protect him from his reputation? Maybe for some Can they protect? And, you know, it, both in the short term and the long term, whether or not the systems that are out there can protect kids that they've actually been able to get into the fold is going to be a theme we're going to come back to in the wire. And this is uh, remembering it. Uh, this is the first time um, that I saw it on my rewatch. I'm like, damn, that reminds me a lot of, you know. Yeah, that's a, a, that's a good link. Yeah, that's definitely a good link. Something else that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to see down the road uh, a little bit. I want to uh, pay off something that I said in the last podcast um, where we discussed, uh, you know, it was game day. And we uh, one of the things I said that was a file this away for later moment was the was Avon taunting the police. And the reason why I said that was a file this away for later moment is I believe that is their action of following him and having to take a look. They were just all so desperate for a look. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to spot him. They needed to know what he looked like. But look how many people went out there just to try to get a look. You know, you had Daniels out there. Sidney was already out there. You had Herc. You had Carver. And uh, at one point, um, to say to McNulty, hey, don't you want to go take a look and see what he's see what he looks like? And McNulty's like, why? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The thing is, that is what caused Stringer to tell Avon we need. We got to make sure you ain't nowhere near these drugs. Right. That caused him to bury deeper. You know, like go underground and go deeper than he already was because the police had to show off and show like, yo, we know what he looks like, and then to go and follow him. Follow him to do what? Yeah. Like they weren't gonna bust him. Yeah. It's like it was just like all you needed was a look to be like, okay, that's Avon. Now we know who the dude is. Mm -hmm. But they got extra. He got extra back, and as a result, he's like, all right. Well, now y'all, in in some ways, now y'all y'all are a, a few steps behind what you already were because y'all jumped out there. Yep, so absolutely. Uh, I think that that, that strategy w did not pay off for them. I don't even know if they had any strategy. It really didn't pay off for them either way. Now, in terms of what age the best, uh, we've talked about this scene now a couple of times in this pod. All right. Here's what aged exceptionally well. While I know Carver probably violated all laws of close contact and proximity and frankly, um, aromas by eating the uh, ding dongs and the and the cheese curls <laughs> at, in in while they were on uh, surveillance. What he had in his hand, Van, those Utz's crab chips, uh -huh. top five chip, and it's not five. Never, top five chip, and it's not five. I've never had it's, them. This is an exceptional chip. It, it, it's such a it's a amazingly mind blowingly great chip when i lived in connecticut i no actually when i visited baltimore i got some of those on a suggestion of somebody that i knew from that area this chip life changer okay i want to challenge you to a chip off okay because i've never had uts before oh but there is a chip that exists down in south louisiana 
I think I know the chip. I think I know what you're going to say. Remember, my former, uh, I had them because they sent me a whole box. Say the name because I, I, I don't remember. Zaps. Zaps. Yes, that's what it was. Ooh. These better than Zaps. Uh, I'm nah, just telling you. No, no. I, I, so, I, can't, I, they uh, can't be Zaps. They better than Zaps. Would you remember what kind of Zaps and you Zaps had? sent me several flavors Zaps, too when I was Zaps at got, Let me. Zaps got, you got the, uh, the jalapeno Zaps. You got the voodoo Zaps. Really, the, that's it, the one I, I have. I have voodoo and jalapeno. So the voodoo, the jalapeno, voodoo is banging. Voodoo is banging. The jalapeno is, is crazy. I never had the uts before though. Where you get the uts from? Now I, I will. I will say this about the I, and I consider myself a chipologist. All right, okay. I'm a, I, I do. I do. I do this van. Okay. All right, um, I am not big into sweets. Um, you know, I, I think desserts are good and all that. But you put a bag of chips in front of me, and you are gonna see a side of me that might be ugly because mm. I just love potato chips. And I feel like the roster for Zaps is deeper than Uts, uh-huh. but they got two heavyweights mm. in the crab chips and in their red hot chips. Mm. They got two. They got two just monster bangers. So the rest of the album may not be that good, but they got two songs you gonna so, you gonna okay. ride the shit out of. So what you're saying is that basically, like the Uts is the Lakers, and then Zaps is the Clippers. The Lakers got two big, huge stars, two of the top five. At first, five. I thought you were talking historic. I'm like, what are no, you talking no, about? No, no, two of the top five. And then the Clippers, okay. they're, they're probably better one to 12 is basically what you're saying. Uh, Well, they're, be- they're better like, you know, three to 12 because they're not better than the top two. Right. You know, I so no disrespect to Kawhi Leonard, um, of course. But yeah, I mean, they have the depth. They got for the sure. Okay. okay. But they just, they just, I don't know if they have a true superstar. Okay, okay. <laughs> they got the depth. I don't know if they got a. They got, right. I just got a superstar. Them crab joints. Look, I, I'm all. I'm all about getting free shit. So if the us people hear this and there's just a box of chips that shows up, I'm good with it. Because by the way, that's what happened with Zaps. It's like it, me, my former uh, co-host Michael Smith, New Orleans guy, mm-hmm. heavy believer in Zaps. We talking about it, and next thing I know, big box of Zaps just shows up at the job, and I went through every one because I felt like that was my duty. Um, nevertheless. Amazing. That is what aged exceptionally well. And also, even though it was leading into a sad moment, but, um, you know, playing a little Black Star right before Kima got shot. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, that was mine. Ageless. I can't believe that. That was yours? Yeah, mine, was, uh, mine was the Black Star record. Like, uh, like uh, you know, the like the shout out to Talib like, and, um, and most, uh, but like mine, I, you don't get the conscious hip hop. That was, that was kind of like the saving grace over Orlando right there. The Wire don't get you too much conscious hip hop. It's a lot of lean with it, rock with it on The Wire. And that's not to diss uh, the franchise boys because uh, all of them was joints and stuff like that. But you hear, you know, they got some Ludo going on. The Wire does something very, 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 I think I've mentioned this before. They kind of let you know what era you're in by the the background songs you're hearing on the radio. You know what I mean? Um, so, but yeah, but that was gonna say I was gonna say Black Star aged the best. And if you like Black Star, you know, it might be some reasons to get excited in the near future. That's all I'm saying. Ooh, oh, look at you. Ah! About, okay. Uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Right. All right. Um, let's do the inverse now. So tell uh you got anything about what aged the worst. You know, for me, when we do what age the worst on these shows, I mean, everything is always uh, pretty easy to um uh to 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 kind of pick out like what age the worst. 
Uh, but this episode to me, like Wallace's braids, I don't know why they bothered me like that much on this particular hey, episode. Hey, look, last episode, he or a couple episodes ago, he, he was wild style with it though. Yeah. <laughs> at yeah. least they were actually braided. <laughs> yeah. Now, like now just kind of looking at his head now, you know, one thing with, with braids not being as in anymore is you don't really see the ODB half braid, half other look as much. You used to see it all the time. It wasn't as jarring. And I'm getting older. So now I'm kind of like, yo, young man, fix your hair and pull your pants up and beat up. Like I'm getting, I'm 40 now. So like now it's bothering me. Every time I'm like, why they got him looking like that? Eating on a Twizzler with his hair all over his head. Do something with your hair, young man. So I would say Wallace's braids uh, <laughs> in this particular episode um, aged age the worst for me. I got a super nerdy journalism thing that aged poorly. Uh, so when Kima and, and Cheryl are out with, with the girlfriends, uh, Kima's girlfriend mentions that she went to Northwestern for journalism. Yeah. And um, Kima says to her back, uh, girl, you talking like you a, a some crusty old reporter. She's like, bitch, you work at a TV station, right? Mm. Now, there, when I was coming up in the business um, way long time ago when we had to walk up a snowy hill backwards, um, there was an intense rivalry between print reporters and TV reporters. Like, we thought print reporter, we thought TV reporters, rather, because I came up as a print report, reporter in, in newspapers. Um, we thought TV reporters were just just stupid and they they were shallow and yeah we we were just like all they do is read our stories on air like we had a very high opinion of ourselves and it was like some bloods and crip shit between <laughs> oh print God. and tv report i mean for real like we we look we was not playing out here right. right like we we felt like we had the honorable profession in journalism us you know print uh folks us hacks um but that didn't age well because these days most of the print people are on TV now. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, all we've all sold out. Right. We've all gone to the dark side. I certainly did it. You know, right. I spent 15 years right fighting a good fight and then now it's just, now I'm over on more so on the broadcast side even though I still write for the Atlantic because it's way more money in TV. That's yeah, why all of y'all. It's just, all of uh, us, we, we sold out. Like, like the, the whole group of y'all. Shout out to you, Shout out to Bomani. Shout out to every everyone. We sold out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look. Shout out to to. I, I used to read everything, and then one day they started putting y'all on TV, and I was like, you know, I like to read what they write, but this is a lot easier than three or four thousand words. You know what I mean? Even Bill. Shout out to Bill. Like, if if you are old school Grantlander, you realize Bill, Bill sold out too. Uh, if you if if, if you are old school reader. Of, of, of that stuff you have to read that shit in shifts that shit was long like like not that i don't i love reading i've read two books this week but it's just easier to to listen to it on the podcast because i could jog so all of y'all y'all got the money too good for y'all all, all y'all <laughs> we sold out it, right. and it was good so so print reporters and tv reporters they saying like it was that much distance between them uh -uh. but i would expect something like that to be in in a david simon um written series right. anything on we love this show but did you have any any nits to pick the belief that the orlando scheme was credible right like right why would savino be buying drugs um from orlando when or even involved in that in any way when they know orlando was just arrested like that like that to me actually that's a rather strong 
we 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 love this show butt moment for me. Every time I think about that, I know that they that they discussed it and they said, well, I need money for the bail bondsman. But you know, even later on, uh uh like Avon is going to say something. And I know that the Barksdales didn't believe that it was true, but why the cops would think that that would be a straight up deal. They kind of fed Kima to the wolves a little bit. All of these guys with all of this flex, with all, with, with, excuse me, with all of these, with all of these smarts, um, with Lester and Minolta, no one thought that it would be unbelievable. I know Carve said it, but to me, that was something that the Wire never really has, uh, which is lazy writing, a, yeah. a, a, a little bit, and I, I, that's 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 so ridiculous of me to say for such a well-written show and i don't mean to offend the fans or offend simon and burns but that was that's a that's a we love this show butt moment for me you know and i think that's fair um because and, and that was something that i kind of uh, i didn't write down exactly that what i did write down was was it okay because and this is the part i don't think the police knew is so he orlando had already gone avon i mean some of this got started because Avon already had found out that Orlando was trying to do a side deal with D'Angelo. He already knows that, right? right? And then Orlando sells to the cops that he could buy from Avon, which is utterly ridiculous because why would Avon ever let you that close to his business? Right. Like, so he he himself did not really think that went through. Like, only something terrible could happen. They know you've been to jail. And I, I know that Orlando wasn't the brightest bulb in the lamp because he was just playing at trying to be a part of the game really he's just a front man and he runs a strip club and the business of a strip club ain't the same as the business of the dope game like everybody knows this so it, it just seemed a little um it just seemed to be some holes in that whole uh that whole kind of uh scheme that was yeah, cooked up the smarter you thing know? to do would have been not even to really even put him uh downtown eager street motherfucker the 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 the, the smarter <laughs> thing to do would be to hatch the scheme have him inform, like inform for you. Don't send him through to county, and put him back in the system. You know, right. you, know you know what I mean. Like if if I, don't, I mean, if you think about it, think about it this way, man. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Wouldn't it have been just as easy to do to Chardine to do that to Orlando? Once you had something on him, of course you had something on him. Yeah. So that that's the only part of it. I would say that we that that's a we love this show, but moment for me. Yeah, no, because I mean, and especially uh, Orlando was even closer to that circle yeah. than Chardin was. Yeah. Like it seemed easy to be able to flip him, and you know he was desperate. Yeah, so for sure, you know whatever. All right, I got loads of trivia about Kima, about uh, Sonia San, because there's a whole lot that went down uh, behind her being the one that uh, you know gets shot in this episode. For one. In the pilot, she was talking to um, Melanie Nichols King, who would then become her on-screen girlfriend, Cheryl. This is in the pilot episode. They're talking on set. And she finds out from her that her character is being killed. She had no idea that her character was going to be killed because she had signed a five-year contract. And because uh, Sonya was never relatively green in this industry, she didn't realize just because you signed a five-year contract doesn't mean you're going to be in there the length of the show. Right. That they could kill you whatever to your character at any moment. So she was hated and w- kind of got into it with David Simon and had to really fight for her character. And the other person 
who fought. And the whole reason, because they had written it that she was dead after this episode. Mm. Hope that's not a spoiler alert. She lives. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right, right. Spoiler alert. Kiba lives. Okay. Right. Um, but, you know, the original way that they were going to write it is uh, or that they had written it was Kima dies. And where the series, they were going to take it in another direction was the guilt McNulty feels. He feels like he got Kima killed and the guilt from that drives him into a completely dark and awful place. And so it was meant to spin McNulty even further out of control than he normally is. But uh, the president of HBO Entertainment, Carolyn Strauss, loved Kima as a character. And she basically told Simon, so you know you're leaving her in there. And that's how she wound up living. Mm, so there you go. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, oh, one thing I'll say uh, before we get to who won the episode is Drunk Jimmy came back in this episode. Yes. Before we let him off, the, that this blood alcohol <laughs> level is high. <laughs> they, they, they call him the next morning, so just want to put that out there. Drunk Jimmy was back. Drunk Jimmy. He never goes away for long, does he? Never goes away for long. All right, Van. Who won the episode? It would be easy to go with Kima, but I go with Orlando Blocker. What? Yes. Yes. You do. I do. The main, Even though he caught a hot one, huh? Even though he caught a hot one. He, like, if you're going to go out, go out with your character being the main driving force behind one of the biggest plot developments in Wire history. Orlando uh, and his, in, his entire descent to getting two... Uh, in the dome is, is so major to this. He has so many pitiful moments. He's like a, a, a puppy with one eye. It's like just go ahead and get him out of here, man. You know what I mean? I feel like this is this is all tempered by your utter disdain for this character. Hate him. He's on the he's on the he's in the Ziggy uh, Ziggy Sabaka Hall of Fame for me. Like of of most hated wire characters. I'm gonna add I'm gonna add him as we go along. Is the Ziggy Sabaka Hall of Fame, and there's two people it. in there right now, and one is Ziggy, was named for him, and the other one is Orlando. Can't stand him, but I, but I will be. <laughs> oh, I got a, I got a great entrant for that one. I will, I will submit a ballot when it's time because it's somebody even worse that deserves to be. Oh wow, I think worse than Ziggy. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, I, I think worse than Ziggy. Uh, Z- Ziggy was annoying, and we'll we no. will break him down later. But Ziggy was mostly annoying. This person was like, I think he totally deserves first ballot entry into your illustrious Hall of Fame for Ziggy Sabatka. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, but it, it, having said all of that, um, you know, I like low usage, high yield players. Um, and in this particular uh, uh, episode, Orlando was y- low usage. But he was very high yield. Not a major character, yeah. but he managed to win this episode. Oh, no. I mean, he had a high PR, yeah. for sure. He, he he got essentially maybe two episodes built around him, and he destroyed the joint. Yep, he did. <laughs> From top to finish. I have, and I say this with a little bit of sadness, even though it, um, it, it will seem, especially to those who've seen The Wire, like a weird pick. But we got to think about where we are at this particular episode. I think Wallace was the winner of this episode. Mm. Um he got to unload his conscience. Um, momentarily, he's in safe harbor because he's at the grandmother's on the shore. And for somebody whose demise we'd seen, I mean, he gone. He had gone from the kid sitting on the couch theorizing about chicken nuggets to snorting heroin, um, and you know now having engineered, if you will, a, a murder, a gruesome murder, and 
I can only imagine what a relief it was for him to finally be able to tell his story. And even though the police, you know, given his life circumstances are not the ideal confessional for him, uh, he was getting way more out of that than they were, even though it was going to allow them to take, you know, to get some clearances, take some numbers or take some names off the board. And because it kind of ends with him going to, you know, his grandmother's and being back with family after having, you know, been taking care of those abandoned kids for, you know, forever, how long he's finally in a position where he was being taken care of because as best they could, the cops were taking care of him and Daniel's seeing personally that he made it to his grandmother. So I thought he was the winner of this episode. And unfortunately it's going to be a short lived feeling. That's all oh. I have to say. It's going to be a short lived feeling, but, but for this episode for right now, right here, he won. Hey, I can live with it. Shout out Wallace. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Shout out to Wallace. And, and now we no longer have to look at, uh, Orlando's dry kit in his hair. He gone. Or whatever that was. He gone. He yeah. out. He gone. Yeah, that that move he was trying to make, he made it. He made it. Unfortunately. To the, he made a move to the upper room. Too he he, he, went, he moved on up to the upper room. Orlando he did Blocker. move up. Yeah. You're right. Right. He did move up them stairs you was talking about. Uh, right. <laughs> and let's be real, he was going downstairs. But anyway. Probably. That's what whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, thank you guys uh, for listening to another episode of Way Down in the Hole. Keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire. We'll catch y'all next time.